We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Ah, yes. What's good, everybody? Welcome back to Veterans Minimum. I'm your host, Nick Dayas. At Nick Dayas 10 is where you can find me. At Veterans Minimum is where you can find everything for the show. This episode is a part one of a two-part conversation I had with one Daniel Umfleet. Daniel is a founder and CEO of KindBridge, which is the world's first teletherapy company that focuses on the successful treatment of gambling and gambling addictions. Yes, I think this is a very important show and conversation, and I had to cut it up into two pieces for many reasons. Reason number one, I am traveling this week, so I couldn't have time to get someone to come in to record some content, so this is a pre-recorded episode. So part one of it, you're getting it now. Part two is already going to be up on Patreon. One of the perks that you get is episodes early of the podcast. I've recorded some really cool content over the last couple of weeks, and if you haven't checked it out, please go back and check it out. My buddy Matt Pavage, he's a stand-up comedian. He had the number one comedy album in the world on Spotify and on iTunes. Really cool conversation about stand-up, what he can and can't say in 2022. Us two grew up together. We're actually playing Football again comes Sundays in a couple of weeks. Actually, in a text thread with him right now. The text thread, Jesus. A group chat with him right now. So that was up. Recorded a podcast with Ty Windish from the Gyro Step podcast, a part of Blue Wire, talking about the second half of the NBA. And some of those conversations have really aged well, right? We're on board the John Morant and the Memphis Grizzlies bandwagon as a team that I think could be this year's version of the 2021 Atlanta Hawks that just out of nowhere, a young team just ends up in the conference finals. So check that podcast out as well. And then also I had Boss, my guy Boss, a former VM OG, was on the podcast earlier this week. We're talking UFC 272 and a bunch of fun conversations in the fight game and in the fight world. We talk about Vegas because both of us are going to be out in Vegas for the card this weekend. And the reason why I had Daniel on is because I'm fascinated by gambling and gambling addiction. Uh, As someone who I express my issues, I mean, a lot of you guys that listen to the show and know what the brand is about, it's very honest and transparent and authentic. And I talk about my issues a lot. Some of the shit I had to do, had to sell my Xbox to pay my bookie, like not things that I'm proud of, but things that had to be done 
in order to combat some of the issues that I was having. But I really enjoy this conversation. Uh, give us some feedback at Veterans Minimum, like I said, is where you can find it. And March is Gambling Awareness Month. And it is a mental health issue for a lot of people in the world. It used to be an issue for me as well. And it's a deep dive into that world and that mindset. And I feel like if you have a friend who is into sports, chances are, especially now, he is dabbling or she is dabbling in betting. So I think it's a very important one. I'm proud of this one. And I would love to get some feedback from you guys, like I said. So Boston and I are going to be out in Vegas for the car, like I mentioned, and we're also going to be recording a bunch of fun content while out there. So stay tuned. Follow us on the gram at Veterans Minimum, and we will catch you guys next week. I'm working hard for respect in my city. I'm working hard for respect. Yeah. You think you got it? I got it for real. This one for those they forget in my city. This one for those they forget. When we first messaged each other on Twitter, you reached out to me through uh, a mutual friend that we have, Owen and uh, Carleen Macmillan. They were on my show. I, I built a nice friendship with them. And uh, you reached out. Owen told me I had to talk to you. And upon doing some of my research which i was telling you before we started recording i'm not really a big research guy when it comes to some of these conversations but uh you are a fascinating individual and i think daniel it's a perfect time to bring you on the show dude i think it's a pleasure to meet you number one um yeah we've been trying to sort of arrange this for a couple of months Owen told me about you as well, and I listened into the the show you guys did together, and it was quite a fascinating, interesting piece. Um, so yeah, I'll tell you a little bit about me, sort of where I've come from with all of this, and why sports betting and problem gambling are my intersection that I work on um, every day with Kindbridge. Um, but you know, I'm actually interested in what did you dig up on me? Because uh, that's always an interesting find. So tell me, what did you find? So you're the founder and CEO of KindBridge, which I'm sure you're well aware of. It's the world's first teletherapy company that focuses on the successful treatment of gambling and gambling addictions. You also are, you went to MIT. Yeah, I did. I did for a little while. I've got quite a interesting academic background. Uh, this is true. I started off in Southwest Missouri. I went to, when I was there, it was Southwest Missouri State. And then shortly after, Missouri State University. And then bounced around on the West Coast for a little while. Uh, did a little bit of time at Stanford. Did a little bit of time at George Mason University over in Virginia. And then later on in my career, um, I needed to go back and get some further education on leadership. And so I did a little bit of time at MIT. So um, I do have a tendency to continue to go back into academia every couple of years just to keep myself fresh and uh, up on top of the topics that I'm interested in. So, yeah, that is true. That is true. Um yeah, so I'll dig into that a little bit. So 
born and bred in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, spent 18 years there and then moved south. After completing my first portion of my education down there, I moved out to the West Coast, started working with a, a management consulting group, which got me really interested in healthcare. And so I started doing a lot of healthcare projects in some of the larger institutions across the country. Um, worked at Stanford for a little while on their hospital system, uh, worked with Cleveland Clinic for a little while, a variety of other smaller uh, health systems across the country, all sort of leading me into the passion of really wanting to do better by people who need access to health care. Um, and then in 2008, I moved overseas. I spent some time in Malaysia and some time in the Philippines and some time in Hong Kong. Um, met my wife while I was actually in the Philippines. She's British. We were working on a project together and continued to tour the world for quite a while. Lived in Australia for a bit. Um, we were due to settle down in San Francisco. And then we had a family tragedy that struck, which took us to England. And so now we reside in sunny Southampton, which is about an hour and 15 minutes south of London. And we split time between the UK and the US. So um, when I do go back to the US, I typically either go to St. Louis or Nashville. My, my brother is in Nashville. Um, so that tends to be my stomping ground when I spend ex uh, extended amounts of time there. Um, as of late with Kindbridge, I've been going to Washington, D.C. a lot, and I've been going to New York a lot. There's just a lot of partners that are coming out of those areas. There's a lot of political issues that are being dealt with on the sports betting space and the treatment for problem gambler space that are coming out of Washington. Um a lot of sports leagues and teams and stuff coming out of New York. So it's been an interesting trip. Um, definitely touched down in quite a few countries, helped with a lot of different population health strategies for different countries and different health systems that are trying to solve big problems. Um, so, yeah, that's sort of in a nutshell where I come from and, and what I've done. Um, Right around the beginning of 2020, when COVID hit, um, I started paying really close attention to what was happening with VC money and what was happening with telehealth law. And it became really obvious really quick that tele in the U.S. was finally going to hit a tipping point where there was no turning back. Um, some of the things that I'd noticed previously when I was working in the U.S. was that there was plenty of telehealth projects that were being built but there weren't a lot of buyers. So we would build these absolutely fantastic platforms that helped with access, but we kept running into roadblocks with insurance companies and we'd run into roadblocks with physicians who just didn't want tele as part of the solution. Well, COVID changed all that. And so the telehealth laws came down, the access laws started to shift and the money that was being poured into Tele just said, you know what, now is the absolute best time to start putting together a national safety net using Tele, leveraging what we can do with a centralized treatment body across the entire country, house it underneath one 
company and really just drive quality for individuals who need access to either coaching, psychoeducation, um, skills, building exercises, group therapy, therapy for the individual, um, sort of all of those things to really start to build a virtual center of excellence where anyone with a gambling problem can present and get everything that they need under one roof. Um, so we've been going at that since about August of 2020. Um, we're about a year and a half in. It's been an interesting year and a half, made some really good relationships, helped a lot of people. Um, and it continues to, to blossom and, and people continue to find us. So that's the eclipsed version of everything that has happened. Do you have any questions? <laughs> Oh, I got, I got a bunch and I was taking notes and you did warn me for the listeners too that this uh, opening intro of running down everything was going to be very lengthy, but I, I did take in a lot. It makes sense now why when I gave you my address to the studio, you were like, yeah, buddy, that's not going to work out because I'm not in New York. So that all makes sense now that you're living overseas. Um, so the MIT thing, were you at MIT when the whole uh, blackjack thing was going down because that's one of my favorite that's one of my favorite movies and stories of all time the the movie 21 yeah man uh no i was not at that time i was at uh, mit was 2000 and 16 right mm. so well after all of that had gone down right so um yeah like i said like my my relationship with academia goes in spurts right so i tend to find myself out of academia for a while and then dig back in for skills building purposes basically um but yeah 2016 was in my team um so no unfortunately i was not there for that although you know i would say that that is definitely left a nice little it's something to talk about you know all the time really um around those circles it's funny. It's funny how MIT is one of the most prestigious schools in the country. And me, when I hear MIT, immediately think of the blackjack story. So that just goes to show you the kind of individual that I am, Daniel. Uh, one, I'm, I'm fascinated how you got into the gambling space, because correct me if I'm wrong, from what I'm catching, this wasn't something that you kind of grew up around or with. No, no, I would say very much the opposite. I mean, St. Louis. I don't know exactly when we, you know, there was always river boats, right? There was a couple of river boats. And then um, later, I must have been probably 15 or 16, a, a, a major casino went up. Um, but it was still, you know, 35, 40 minutes away from where I grew up. Um, wasn't really a big attract. I couldn't get into it basically. Right. So there, there was no real attraction when I was living in St. Louis to go, to go gamble or to, to partake in any of that. I, I would say like my gambling days came when I was at university because where I was situated in Southern Missouri was about a two hour drive from Miami, Oklahoma. So literally right across the border from Missouri to Oklahoma, you've got a handful of tribes that have a handful of casinos right there on the border. Um, and that would be one of the things that we would do on the weekends would be, you know, five, you know, 
pile six, seven deep in a car <laughs> at the time, um, and then drive down two hours and play $2 blackjack for a couple of hours and hang out and then work our way back at, you know, four o'clock in the morning. Typical university age style play, you know. Um, I don't know how old, I don't know how old you are. Um, I'm 38. So I've been out of university now, uh, you know, for quite a while. Um, but when I was in university, there was no, you know, there was no, you had to go to Vegas if you wanted to do any kind of sports betting legally. Um, and there just wasn't, it was all far enough away from me that it never really, I never really had the desire to get in the car and, and drive that far. Um, well, when I turned 21, I did quite enjoy hitting up the casinos up in St. Louis when I would go home. Matter of fact, my brother's after party and also my after party at my wedding that we did in the U.S. was at the casino. So now we're talking, you know, you know, yeah, what do you know? Um, so, yeah, no, it's yeah, I didn't grow up like we didn't bet on sports or anything like that in the family. Um Gambling wasn't something that my parents did. Um, as a matter of fact, I'm pretty sure my parents have only ever been in a casino for my wedding and my brother's wedding. Um, you know, so it's just not one of those things that was ever really a dominant player in my life. I got interested in it because I didn't actually know at the time that it could become problematic. I, I it never really occurred to me. Um, it was just not something that I'd thought about, right? Like all of my experience in healthcare was around physical, right? It was all looking at, you know, as ortho, right? Like looking at knees and hips and things mm. like that. Um, all around like more advanced cancer treatments and things like that, right? So like addiction and psychiatry and psychology and mental health wasn't something that was ever really on my radar until I got introduced to the gambling world. And I got, I mean, I got introduced to the gambling world in such a weird way. Right. Um, I literally got off of a plane from Aberdeen having wrapped up what I was doing up North and got met with by this guy that I was now working with, with this reg tech company um, at the airport who picked me up and took me to ice. And I don't know if you know what ice is, but ICE is like the largest casino conference on the planet um, and it's run out of London. And so like once a year, the industry gets together, showcases all of their products, showcases everything that they've got that they're bringing into the market. Um, and a ton of vendors just show up and a ton of, of buyers just show up. And it's just like this amazing display of everything that's coming down the pike for the industry. Um, and then there was this teeny tiny little section that was kind of cordoned off all the way in the very back of a giant convention center that was dedicated to responsible gambling. Hmm. And I just, <laughs> I remember it was like, you know, at the time I'm like, I'm like monitoring my step count, right? Like that's like a thing, right? Like monitor your step count. And I just remember I spent, you know, four hours at ICE and I clocked something stupid like 17,000 steps in four hours. It was just insane. It was that big. 
And the responsible gambling section got very, very, very little love. And so it was immediately kind of like, oh, this is interesting. Obviously, this is a subject that's not on everybody's you know, plate of interest. Um, and then we wrapped that up and then we hopped in the car and we drove three hours to Birmingham. And Birmingham is where the UK Gambling Commission is located. And we walked into the Gambling Commission and had a chat with them about how to provide wider protections across the country. And I thought to myself, well, now we're talking like this could seriously be something that was really interesting. And so, you know, I spent about two years doing that and I got exposed to a lot of things that made me think a lot about what individuals that suffer from a gambling addiction need in order to be successful in recovery. Um, and then also a lot about how to reach them. How do you it, present when you when you have a mental health problem or when you have an addiction like alcohol or pills or something like that, right? Um, but really, the you factor in the additional stigma that comes with the fact that you've basically lost the house, you've lost the car, you've lost the wife, you've lost the kids, you've just lost everything, your 401k is gone, anything that you had, you know, packed away in savings for a rainy day is history. And you just have no idea how to dig yourself out of the hole and get yourself back to square. Um, thinking a lot about, you know, what does that person need at that moment in time? What will actually make them reach out for help? And then how do you get them the kind of help that they need to be successful? So I spent a lot of time thinking about that. And there's a lot of lessons learned because I get exposed to both sides. The UK has got you know, what is considered to be sort of the gold standard across the globe in terms of gambling regulation and in terms of uh, consumer protections for the individual and then access points for individuals who need care. Um, but there's a lot of, you know, I'm going to get shot for this later, but the, you know, there's a lot of failings on that part. There's a lot of shortcomings in that system. Um, and there's a lot of things that, that can be done better. Um, so that's ultimately what I'm focusing on is, is trying to do better by the person who needs access to care and sort of meet them where they are and bring them the tools that they need to be successful. So that encompasses quite a lot. That encompasses everything from care access to dealing with insurance companies to make sure that insurance companies are on board with gambling addiction being a reimbursable disease. It is registered in the DSM as a as an addiction, um, but that doesn't mean every insurance company is interested in helping a person who's got this particular addiction. Um, so lobbying and working with insurance groups to make sure that access is is, you know, first and foremost for individual available. Um, that's part of it. Keeping up with what's going on with the regulation from state to state and doing what we can to provide evidence or at least just have a conversation with legislatures around what kind of protections need to be made available through the bills. Um, what other types of 
signposting needs to be in position for an individual to present other than just a hotline. Um, so it's a lot of advocacy and it's a lot of trying to bring uh, healthcare into a space that hasn't really had the handshake with healthcare from, you know, 2022, so to speak. Um, I'm going to shut up for a minute because I do have a tendency to just go on and on and on. And on. <laughs> it's cool, man. It's 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 part of it's part of how uh, how your brand is, and and I like the storytelling. Um, and I am getting a lot from this from listening. Uh, but to backtrack a little bit, uh, you asked my age. I'm 30. I'll be 31 probably around the time that I'm posting this episode. I'm 30 now. A uh, little background in myself. I'm someone who I kind of grew up around betting uh, and gambling, the whole nine. And I do think that there's a difference between the two, which is a question I want to ask you because it's something that I've been preaching for years. And since this is your expertise, I would love to, you know, sort of either be validated or put in my place, depending on what my stance is. But I, uh, I grew up around it. So um, my family's Greek and... I'll never forget how I got into betting. I'm seven years old, and my one of my uncles gives me a parlay card. He's like, hey, buddy, pick pick four games, four teams to win. I don't know any football at the time. I was a soccer guy growing up. I really didn't dive into football until I was about 14, 15 years old. I started playing it more in high school, and then I fell in love with it. But I give him a parlay card. I give the car parlay card back. I picked four winners. Next week, he comes over, gives me 20 bucks, seven years old. I'm like, oh, this is easy. Pick a couple games, right? What an introduction. This is a layup. Spoiler, everybody. Not so easy. That's for sure. But then I always became fascinated, Daniel, by the numbers, right? Like, I feel like everyone has their own thing that they kind of like are obsessed with or, or nerd out about, right? Like it might be comic books. It might be the stock market. It might be whatever it might be. But for me, it was always sports betting. And I was fascinated by how often the number lands on 49 when the over-under is 50, right? Like how close it gets, things like that. And it was a way that always separated me from my group of friends and just in general. And the way I built my brand is you know, sports betting, those conversations can make you a smarter actual sports fan. Because the one thing that I feel like sports books do is there's no bias. They don't, they want to make money. So that's a nice way of you understanding, oh, I think this team per the Vegas sports books, or now, I mean, it's sports books all over the place, right? Since it's legal in, in many places, but this sports book thinks that Manchester United is going to finish fifth in the Premier League or the Giants as a Giants fan in New York. You know, they have no chance to surpass five wins. It kind of brings you back down to earth as a sports fan. So that's always been an obsession with me with, with sports betting, how it's made me a sharper sports fan. Does that make any sense to you? Well, 100%. Yeah, it's not uncommon at all. You know, like, I, I mean, I can argue it's not even an argument, right? It's more of a statement of fact that I think my career has all been around looking at and analyzing numbers to make smarter decisions, right? Like, if you can get data that helps you become an informed individual, be that a consumer or be that a person who's in charge of running a business, um, 
it's going to help guide you in any way, shape or form to a decision that makes sense, right? It might not always be the right decision, right? And I think that that's the same in life, right? Like you can have as much data in front of you as possible, uh, but you could be missing something. There's a variable that, you know, like even if you've run the model a thousand times, maybe on a thousand and one, it gives you the outcome that you never saw, but that's the outcome that happens, right? Um, yeah, no, so I mean, it makes perfect sense to me all the way through. Yeah. So I would you consider yourself, are you a sharp then? Would you consider yourself a sharp? Uh, mm, that's a lot of pressure and a label that I would have to throw on myself. But I do, I do, I will say this, I, and I'm, it's impossible to always be right, right? Like we try to be perfect in an imperfect genre in the world when it comes to sports betting. Uh, professional sports bettors strive for about 55%. If I showed up it, back in high school with a 55 on my math test, my mom would, you know, slap the shit out of me basically, right? But in sports betting, if I could tell people, hey, I pick 55% every single year, there's ways that you could maybe get a loan or, or do something crazy like that and ask people for money to invest it, you know? But the thing, the thing about sports betting and to answer your question, uh, I think sometimes the best decision I make is the one that I don't put. So like, I like to inform people. I like giving people information, how I see things going, where money is coming in on tickets, coming in on trends. Right. And yeah, there are exceptions to every rule when you're looking at it from a game to game prospect. But I think that from an understanding and what things mean, I hold myself to a very high standard, Daniel. So yeah, I, I guess I would answer that. Yes. When it comes to your initial question. Fair enough, man. That's good. You know, like that's, you know, it's, I've met a lot of people in the industry um, you know, some, some are what they would consider sharps, right? Um, some of them have got their methods, they've got their ways, they've got their recipe, they've got their formulas, you know, they've got their superstitions in some cases, um, you know, and then I've been on the other side of the coin where I've met the folks that are just in tatters over, a bunch of poor decisions that all accumulated in a very short period of time, or there were a bunch of poor decisions that were accumulating in clusters. Um, and then they accumulated into large, 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 large failings, large losses um, over a long period of time. Mm -hmm. Right. So, I mean, I've met tons of interesting folks, right. So I, I'm not going to get into to disclosing names or anything, right? But you know, I came across a guy who was on the World Series of Poker Tour for a really long time, and he he came to me and he, he said, you know, what really started to show the deterioration quickly was when these young kids started coming in with a little bit different way of thinking, a little bit different way of playing, right? And I was getting creamed. And I started thinking to myself, you know, maybe it's time, like maybe it's time, maybe I've lost my edge, right? Maybe it's time to just step out. And then he thought, fuck it. No, I'm doubling down. Forget it. Right. And he went in and he went in and he was trying like hell to compete with these young guys, just all kinds of statistics at their fingertips, 
different types of technology using to, you know, train them and kind of keep them sharp. Whereas he's this guy who's crossed the threshold of 55, doesn't engage much with technology, reads a book here and there, just doesn't stay on top of it um, with sort of skills development and then ends up just creams, loses everything, his entire career earnings just gone. History, right? And he's homeless underneath an overpass for a while while he's trying to sort it out and figure out what's going on. And he keeps trying to claw his way back into it because it's the only thing that he knows and it's the only thing that he's ever done, mm. right? You know, so you come across stories like this and, you know, they're not all as, as grandiose as guys who have sat at the final table type thing, right? Um, and you get a lot of stories of, of just regular folks who, you know, would dip away and go play the slot machines for a while or they'd go spin the roulette wheel or they'd sit down and play blackjack and, you know, they'd do it to cope with the loss of something or um, do it to just sort of escape whatever it was that was going on in life and, then all of a sudden it just became a habit and just became routine. They just kept finding themselves going over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And they weren't people who were educating themselves on what the odds were of the game, right? They weren't people who were paying close attention to the numbers. Um, I would say, you know, a fair amount of them were educated enough because they played enough that they've, they've got kind of a feel for it. Um, and they can kind of tell you some basics when it came to numbers, but none of them were ever, uh, not, not a lot of them that I've come across have, have ever been like really into it, like the 21 style. Right. Um, and, you know, then they start stealing from their wife. They start stealing out of the retirement fund. They start stealing from their company and they're just chasing trying to get the money back that they lost to replace the funds from whichever account they managed to borrow out of to be able to sit down at the table. And it always ends in disaster when that recipe really starts to, to come right. Um, you know, so it's both, man, you know, you gotta, it's like, it's, it's like everything you got good and you got bad, you got both sides. And it, a lot of it, does come down to decisions. A lot of it comes down to the way that the brain works. A lot of it comes down to the way that you get kind of hooked into patterns. Um, a lot of it comes down to what's going on up there, what's firing you know, to, you know, sort of get you humming. Um, so much of it stems from what's gone on throughout your life and even all the way back to some childhood trauma in a lot of cases. Um, and with, with, with gambling, when it comes to addiction, it's not always just about having made the wrong decision, if that makes sense, right? If you're well and truly hooked into something and you're not making the right decisions anyway, what's driving it, right? And most of the time it's that compulsive behavior. It's that addiction. It's that's, what's really starting to hijack and take over your brain, um, and overriding any of the sensibilities that you have, right? Um, so yeah, it's... Uh... We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, 
and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. It's an interesting subject. And like we've yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I wanna I wanna jump in there because uh I like I like talking from experience because I, I've been on that end. Uh, I've been in scenarios where when I go to a casino and I go to Vegas often, I'm, I'll actually probably be in Vegas around the time that this episode releases. Um, when I go to casinos, Daniel, I don't indulge in slots. I don't indulge in the standing roulette table. I, I have a very strict hit and go, hit and run roulette right before my friends and I go out to a club or to a pool party. Let's throw like 50 bucks on red. Or if we want to get really crazy, let's throw it on a number and then I'm out. I do not stay at those kind of games for too long. Craps, I like going with my buddies. We have a little tradition. Every time we go to a casino, when we go on a trip that has a casino, we reserve a craps table for about an hour. We let them know that there's about 12, 15 of us. We want it just to be us. We have some fun. Nothing too crazy. No one gets too wild. Then we go out to dinner. That's always like a staple on a vacation. But those games, I don't like those games. I'm a big Texas Hold'em guy. When I go to casinos, I like playing poker. And I, I haven't lost when I go play. I know it might sound crazy, but it's a game that I control a lot of the outcome. Yeah, have I lost like 50 to 100 bucks? Yeah, but I don't blow my entire bankroll on it. And I come out I come out pretty positive in a lot of those scenarios. One is because I know the game really well. You were talking about the the guy on the World Series of Poker. I was one of those poker kids about a decade ago. I have a Poker Star shirt, a full tilt shirt. I I was in the trenches. I got a gift card for Christmas one year and it was for about 200 bucks because you know what are you going to get someone that's 20 21 years old you're not going to get them a shirt you're not going to get it you might not like it right so i get a gift card what do i do being the degenerate that i was where that was around the time when i was really into gambling like bad and i i put it on on poker stars and i turned that 200 dollars into eleven thousand dollars doing sit and goes i show my father my father's blown away he's angry at me but he's impressed also because he knew i like poker in my head, I'm sitting in class now. I'm at CW Post, a private school. And all I'm thinking in my head 
are hands, 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 hands being played. You know, like that's all I can think about. I'm like, oh, I just, I turned $200 into 11K. I'm the fucking man. That's what I'm thinking, right? Couple months later goes by, couple months later go, go by, FBI, the federal agency comes in, shuts down the Black Monday or Black Friday. I think it was Black Friday. Lost, lost $11,000. Lost it, gone. Never got it back. Whatever money you had in there, gone. So I've been that person that was super hooked into gambling. I've sold an Xbox to pay my bookie. I'm not proud of it, but it's what has had happened that brought me to this point here now too. You know, I've asked people for money and came up with egregious lies as to why I needed the money in order to take care of this gambling debt. It's a lot easier for me to say now because I've built this show out. I'm working with with a sports book now. I talk about betting now. And a lot of people always ask me now with it being so popular and, and legalized and everyone's sending screenshots of bets that they hit or bets that they like. I don't bet every day. So it's it's become something that through the years, through the bad experiences, through the years of making $1,000 a week working and delivering pizzas and waking up in the morning to go with my dad and then gambling 1200 of it and always chasing, I learned that, all right, man, this is out of control. The podcast, starting the podcast six years ago really helped me out because it allowed me to talk about it and I was able to fulfill my vices through talking about it in a very weird way. So when it comes to gambling addiction, that's something I definitely want to dive into now. That's a little bit of my story of how I was able to get rid of it. I love gambling now. I love betting though, right? Like I love betting. I don't like gambling. And I think, and tell me how you feel about this. Is there a difference between the two? It's something I'm very passionate about because I believe there is a difference. Tell me why you think there's a difference between the two. Okay, so I think gambling when i think of gambling i think of something that you don't have much control over a roulette wheel um a uh what's another slot machines right i no matter how much research i put into it when it comes to gambling i think that there's an element of no control that you have over the outcomes where in betting poker if i have two seven I'm going to fold it. If I have ace king and I'm on the button, I'm in a strong position here. If I have pocket eights, I'm in a strong position there. So I'm betting there. Sports betting too. I feel like there's a way that you can get an edge on certain things. If you know the sport, if you know the trends, if you know some of the background going into it. So I think there's a huge difference between betting and gambling. And in gambling, a lot of times you're kind of drawing dead also, to use that poker analogy. Yeah, that's true. I think it's the way I look at it is products, right? Like casino has got so many different products that drive somebody in. You know, it's all under the band of entertainment, right? But, you know, like, you know, even now it's like now they're introducing betting on esports and things like this, right? So, you know, you can go away and do your homework on, you know, whichever esports team it is that you're a big fan of and want to support, um, you can do the same kind of homework you can on sports, right? It's a different kind of education process. You know, like when it comes to spinning a wheel or when it comes to rolling the dice, you know, it's, 
you just got to know the odds and you just got to know that 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 product is a different product to play versus the others. So I don't know that I, I don't know that I would agree that they're different. I just see them underneath the same sort of umbrella as it's a product that is there for entertainment. And with all of them, you can really educate yourself on what your odds are. And you just got to calculate your risk and understand what it is that you want to do. Right. And I think that that's, that's sort of how I choose to look at it. Right. Like sports betting is always for me personally, right. Like sports betting is the one thing that like, yeah, I wouldn't, you know, I like for the horses, right. You know, like for Churchill Downs, right. Or, um, you the know, Derby or madness, right. Yeah. Or, um, the Super Bowl stuff like that, you know, like the, that kind of stuff. I, I find digging around doing some research and placing a bet, right? Like it doesn't bother me at all. But I've never been a poker player, so I'm not really going to take that risk. My brother was a poker player and he'd kick my ass every time we would sit around and play. And he was one of those guys that would like, oh, I know you got, you know, I know you have this. I know you have eight ten. You know, like he's a talker at the table. He's like, just based off of the way you're reacting to the cards that fell, you have an 810 type thing. And I just be like, God, what are you, a clairvoyant? Like, this is just, (laughs) you know, so I can, I, you know, it was never something that I really took to. Um, It just wasn't. And then just, you know, knowing what the house odds are on things, it's a choice on what you want to play. Right. And what you want to do and what your what your palatable level of risk is. And I think that that's just sort of across the board with all gambling products. Right. Um, So I'd say that's that's my take on it. It's not like a direct answer. It's kind of veiled in a couple of different examples, but I don't particularly see it as as different. I I see it as different understanding how to play game. Mm right and how they're played but i still see the risk on the other end because you know even if you don't know what the odds are on the wheel when you spin it right how do you know what the odds are on the free safety going out in the middle of the game which completely changes the way the coverage is done and your whole thing's blown right you know so there's unpredictable factors in sports betting which yeah you know which comes down to like an interesting piece and you know this it's a topic that um you know maybe you find it of interest maybe not i don't know i haven't had a ton of conversations around it but it come up when uh when um the miami dolphins coach uh brian what's it what's flores what's his name flores yeah when he came out and said that the coach was offering him a hundred grand to basically not show up for games, right? Like how much of that might be going on? Is mm-hmm. that going on? Right. You know, it, like what kind of influencing factors are going on there that, you know, match fixing is a very, very big business and there's integrity associations that are dedicated to scouring data to look for anomalies that give you an indicator on whether or not there was some foul play going on in the game. And it's a big business. There are companies that literally rake in money hand over fist, literally just to analyze every single play and look for anomalies that is inconsistent with previous play 
highlight it, flag it, and then investigate it and send it over to the league for investigation. And you know, it's a situation, you know, esports in particular, only because I've just recently had the conversation around it. I mean, esports match fixing is just off the charts, mm. right? Like it's just off the charts. Um, way more so compared to some of the more traditional sports. And esports is just sort of at the very beginning in its infancy. Um, a little bit of regulation moving into the space, but way more opportunity to fix than there is on the grand scale of things with some of the leagues. But I mean, I put it to you, you know, what do you think in scenarios where coaches are accused of or not coaches, coaches are accusing owners of paying them to throw the game. What do you feel about that? Well, that's that's, that's why, why it becomes such, such a big issue, issue because the one, the one reason, reason why everybody was so hesitant about sports, sports betting being legalized, being legalized they always, they always would bring up the same phrase, phrase, the integrity of the game. Right? And I right? always, and I always like felt Daniel, like, Daniel, the way that the way that the integrity of the, the integrity game of the game would be at the collegiate would be at the collegiate level. not so much at the professional not so much at the professional level. my friends and, and I that we've my had friends on the and show, I that we've had on we the show bring up the same we always players. bring up the so same players so to my audience it's probably a little if you were to go up to Chris if you were to go up to Chris Paul who makes forty million dollars who makes forty million dollars a year and say hey man I need you to miss a couple fifty thousand dollars here's fifty thousand dollars I make that on nine dribbles. I get mean, that on here. nine drills. Now, now, get out of here. At the now, professional level, now, I think it's at the professional level. I think it's harder for the integrity of the game to be jeopardized unless the there's a scenario with the owner who is telling the coach the to owner, lose games. But who is telling the coach to lose games? In defense to that scenario, only a little bit. In defense there was the to that scenario, only a little bit. There was the idea of let's lose these games to get a quarterback. Look, Joe Burrow was just in that same class. So right? and you've he went seen to the Super teams Bowl. on purpose lose, so but it was you've seen teams it was on always something lose, that was perceived it was, by people. Right? It was like, always ah, they're something that purpose. was perceived they want a better draft by people. But they hear the right? like ah, they're taking on purpose. They want a better draft on it. But that's they hear the like, owner what the put a monetary value, and then you add in the component of the racial stuff that's going on in the NFL with the black coaches. And then you add in the component of the racial stuff that's going on in the NFL with black coaches. But that's going back to the Chris Paul thing. I think Daniel, if you go up to a kid who's playing going back to the Chris Paul school, I think Daniel, if you go up to a kid who's playing at a lower level Division One school. And he plays and he's the fourth guy at a lower bench. level he gets Big Ten school. A game and and he's the and fourth like, hey, guy man, off the bench who gets three? 12 minutes Not a game. game. Right? And you go this game when like, you go hey, out buddy, there and you know, shoot, here's $25,000. Not this game, right? This We're game not talking when you about the Johnny Manziel here's the Tim Tebow's who now with the NIL We're not talking about the Johnny Manziel's and the I'm talking about like the average Joe on the team who has no professional aspirations. That's where the integrity I'm talking about like the average Joe on the team who has no professional Yeah, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. Thank you for, and I don't know the stories too well. I just, I, I don't know the names, but I remember some, I remember some examples that were thrown out before it was, you know, past what must've been over for like six months, like Jersey, it just, you know, legalized pretty much on day one, as soon as it got done. Um, but there were very few States that had legalized sports betting. And I was sat at a conference and a bunch of old in ex <laughs> it was ex NFL players that um 
you know, they're from an el- they're from older generation, right? Um, and also the sports integrity guys that were talking, right? And they were they were bringing out examples of running backs fumbling the ball three times in uh, in bowl games with no fumbles on the year or very, very, very few fumbles on the, on the year going into the game. So like the, the idea of fumbling three times in a single game, just absolutely ridiculous. And then when they did investigation and they squeezed the guy a bit, they found out, yeah, he had thrown the game. He'd been paid to fumble. And it was insane what the amount was that he was paid to fumble. And it just makes you think about what, kind of situation college kids are in that they would literally be willing to throw a bowl game for less than five grand okay so you answered my question when you said insane was it like six figures or insane like really that much which was what you answered insane insane like you know the second you get a job and you're out in the real world it's not really that big of an issue you know what i mean like it's like now you're talking about amounts that it's like it's a car payment or rent, right, or mortgage. But you know you got these examples. But it, there's just so many things that are changing, evolving, with the way that sports betting is being introduced and the way that leagues are starting to change, especially around with the college players and the college players being able to do deals and things like that. Um, that it's. You know, I think it's just such an interesting time in sport, right? Some of the things that drove me crazy, right, when I first moved over here, because, you know, remember this, when I when I came over here in 2014, you know, PASPA was still in place, sports betting wasn't legal, you weren't seeing much by way of casino advertisements on the television, in like Oklahoma and you're like, okay, well, here's the tribal casino that's two hours away. Come visit us and come to the resort. Um, you just weren't really seeing it. Right. But then like when I landed over here, it even took me a minute to just sort of acclimate and wrap my head around it. But I live pretty close to the city center. And when you walk down the high street, which is basically like a main street, right? So main street, you know, at one point in time, now a lot of them are closed, right? But at one point in time, within a mile and a half stretch, there was 17 betting shops from top to bottom. And, you know, Coral, Ladbrokes, Patty Power, you know, like you name it, right? Like just boom, 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 right? Up and down the vein. Offshoots, you know, like it's not right on the main street. Okay, here's a side street. There's a betting shop, right? You know? everywhere right and it took me a minute to get used to that right and what took me even more time to get used to was the fact that you would actually see you know you'd see a dad walking with his kid and they'd come by the betting shop and then the dad would be like hang out outside i'm gonna run in and place a bet and leave their kid outside of the shop go place the bet come back continue on right and that is just sort of odd to me. And then I started paying closer attention to what we were seeing on the TV, right? And, you know, World Cup time comes around and Sky, which is the television provider over here, but also a major casino brand, um, you know, was flashing things across the screen was like, okay, if this guy scores in the next 90 seconds, 
you know, here's what you get type thing, right? You know, put, press your little blue button on your remote to, to place your bet, right? You know, it's like, okay, so you got in-game betting going on with constant promotion coming through. You had advertisement after advertisement after advertisement after advertisement. I think at one point they, they added it up and they were like, every third advertisement is a sports betting or a casino app advertisement, right? Like everything. And this was going on 24 hours a day, seven days a week. This, this happened very similarly. My chair keeps just dropping. It's been the weirdest thing. I don't know if you've noticed it, but uh, this happened similar to uh, the Daily Fantasy boom. Around 2015, 2016, DraftKings and FanDuel, where it's it's fantasy football, but you know you rotate every week. You have a salary cap. I mean, dude, very similar to what you're saying about the advertisement in in one commercial break, which is what let's say three minutes, right? Your average commercial break in between, you know, uh, a turnover on downs and the, the game coming back. It would be a DraftKings commercial, Pizza Hut, FanDuel commercial. The new Toyota that's dropping, then DraftKings, all within a commercial break. And then that's when they got in trouble because over here in the States, and New York in particular, they spent about $25 million on advertising in week one of that season. And then in the off season, New York came in and said, no more daily fantasy. You're not allowed to. And then they overturned it where they sold them on the idea that it's skill-based, it's not gambling, that's a whole other conversation. But then they brought it back, but it's very similar to what you're saying. You're watching a Premier League game, it's, and they're showing that, that kind of thing. So it just, it just resonated with me thinking about that. Yeah, and so you go through these, you know, you go through these wedges. Do you have kids at all? No, 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 no kids, no girlfriend, nothing. Gotcha, okay, cool. So, <laughs> you know, it, it's just, it's the things that you don't think about you know, when it's just you, right? right? Like when it's just you, it's, it's totally different. Cause it's like, I'm experiencing this. It doesn't, I'm not thinking about how this is impacting others. Right. And I think, you know, in, introduce my first child and start, you know, she starts becoming of age where she's paying attention to what's going on on the television. And she's asking questions about what's going on on the television. And then you just find yourself in strange situations where you're just like, why is there every other damn commercial, a commercial where my daughter's getting exposed to this, right? Like, why is this going on in match constantly, you know, every single pre-league game, every single UEFA game, every single everything, you know, why is this just being jammed down our throats and why are the able to see this on primetime television you know and so that is just as a father that was just something that started to dawn on me which was like it's just too early it's just you know interesting and that's just a personal thing right so um but what i did like about some of the the steps that the uk has taken on this is you know there's no advertising in the match um you know there's no advertising before 9 p.m right like so the kids are well asleep and now it's all post 9 p.m. Um, you still get the you still get the jerseys with the logos on it and stuff like that, um, but it's it's just an, it's a different experience when you've got you know kids who are massively in sports watching and 
they're asking questions versus now, you know, they're not asking questions, you know? So it's one of those things that is like a parent, you're like, do I really need to explain this right now? You know? Um, So yeah, it's interesting, but like I got a couple of calls over the, over the weekend, right after the Super Bowl, um, and actually really kind of just peppered throughout the playoff run where like, for example, some people that I grew up with in Missouri that I've been talking to about what's going on with all of this for years, who are literally like tunnel vision. It's not here. So we don't understand it, you know, and this is, this is a topic that we're just kind of like, really, you know, like all back to what I was saying at the beginning of the conversation, you know, just aware that this is a problem or it can become a problem or that it's even a classified addiction. Right. You know, so like the concept of trying to explain to people what this is in locations where they're not inundated with ads, where sports books, not legal yet, where the only access that they have to gamble legally anyway, is if they get in the car and drive down to the riverboat or to the casino, you know, um, it's been sort of an interesting conversation to have with folks to sort of live in that vacuum, right? Well, now they're like, well, shit, now that we're watching these games on a national level, they're being advertised everywhere. It's not just market specific. It's across the entire country. We're seeing it, you know, just constant advertising for FanDuel or for DraftKings or for, you know, whoever the sports book is in the state, you know, Barstool, whatever, whoever yeah. it is, right? And, and and hold on real, real quick, not not even the advertisement for the, the particular sports book, the, the networks that broadcast the games now have the point spreads on the breakdowns and they're talking about props because also, Daniel, look, it was always the elephant in the room that people just ignored. I believe that every sports fan has made a bet at some point in their life. It's it's a take that I just think I'm uh, I think it's a layup. Like I think I would put odds that it's favored that that's the case, right? So so there was always a subset of fans that would watch these games and you know the Jimmy the Greek stuff early on when you were you were never you were never allowed to say that oh this team's going to cover the minus 6 but he would work around it by saying, ah, you know what, Daniel? I think the Bears are going to cover by double digits. I'm a better. I'm watching it. I'm like, oh, okay. Professional better Jimmy the Greek. He thinks they're going to cover the six. So, but, but it was always something that the NFL was very hypocritical about, right? Like the NFL has a lot of its issues and it's the number one sport in the country. A hundred million people watched the Super Bowl. The ratings were through the roof and it's only going to get bigger and better, right? But... They always treated betting and betters like it was frowned upon, right? Like they looked at you with the stank eye. And it's what made the Thursday Night Football Falcons-Jaguars game relevant. It was the fantasy football aspect and the gambling aspect to that, which goes back to what you were saying about all your your friends or or clients or, or anyone, patients that would speak to you. I've had the same experience with my friends. Now with all the apps, they're like, oh, dude, this shit is addicting, man. How do you do it? How do you do it? I was like, I do it because I've been doing this for about two decades. And I had to go through some whack shit for me to overcome and realize like, hey, man, I don't need to bet the three o'clock tennis match in Australia just so I could get my fix in.
headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com